0: Man, remember the days uh, when people used to post like pictures of their breakfast on social media? That was kind of fun. These days, you don't have to plug your phone in to charge it anymore. Just open any social media feed, and it will charge off of all of the tension that's just crackling everywhere. One of my favorite one-frame, one-single-panel comics—I guess you could maybe call it a meme. Is uh, It's called Duty Calls, it's by Randall Munro. One little panel, a little stick guy sitting at a desk chair, at a desk with a computer. And there's kind of just sparks coming off of his hands at the keyboard, so he's typing furiously. And the voice comes from outside the panel, you assume it's his wife. She says, are you coming to bed? And he says, I can't, this is important. And she asks, what? And he says, Someone is wrong on the internet. And I relate to that because that's kind of our house. But the reality is, people are wrong in the world. And I like that joke because it's just this reminder tons of false ideas. It's just, it's all over the place, it's always around us. And Is it my job to fix all of that? How exactly are we to interact with people and engage with this world? We we believe that God in his providence and his guidance and his care for us. we, We spend a lot of time thinking and talking and praying and going back and forth. We give it a lot of time as we're trying to pick out where would God have us go for a sermon series. We preach expositionally. We take a book of the Bible at a time. That way, whatever God has in that book, we can't skip over it. We like to spend some time in the Old Testament, come back to the New Testament, make sure our diet is balanced with all the different genres, but we believe that God leads us and it seems especially clear right now in these times that God would, he led us to these letters from Paul to Timothy. We've called this series the household of, excuse me, the economy of God. The economy of God, God's ordering and arranging of all things. That's what Paul's writing about. Today, we come to the conclusion of 1 Timothy. We're going to start next week back into 2 Timothy, so a little bit of an intermission here. We come to the end of the first letter, but not the end of the series. And Paul's focus in this letter, full of instructions to young Pastor Timothy, has been about how to deal with the fact that there are people who are wrong in the church That's one of the most significant things about all of this, that Paul's not even dealing here with everybody wrong in the world. He's just dealing with the people who are wrong in the church, people who are promoting false teachings within the church. And so, what do we do? What do we do about the fact that there are people who are wrong? We're going to be in the last two verses of 1 Timothy this morning. I believe God has a word for us. So I want to invite you to stand, if you're able, as we read God's Word. We practice this standing when we read God's Word just out of our reverence, our humility, our recognition. This is God's Word, and it's authoritative, and we receive it. It's, it's our place simply to hear it and believe it. 1 Timothy 6, 20 and 21. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. And that's the end of the letter. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for the grace, the power that you give to your people in every age, in every generation, in every culture, in every place, every geographic location, every time period in history, your people who open up these spirit-inspired words and read for themselves what your spirit says to the church. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for how you have addressed us through the letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. Thank you for the fruit that it's bearing in our lives. We receive these verses by faith this morning. And we pray that you would speak to us and make us people who love Jesus so deeply, so passionately, and love and treasure the gospel and guard the gospel for your glory. And for the sake of the world, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I think the main point in this text is pretty straightforward. It's this double-sided command that comes right away. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid what is falsely called knowledge. So guard and avoid. We've seen that pattern before. Paul talked to Timothy about fleeing and pursuing or in other epistles he talks about putting off and putting on. Those are not two separate commands. They're two sides of the coin. Guard the deposit. Avoid irreverent babble. Guard and avoid. So guarding the deposit. That's the command here. That's the main point of the text. So the question is what is the deposit that Timothy is supposed to guard? Well narrowly the deposit is the gospel itself, that message of Christ's life, death, and resurrection for our sins. Broadly, it's all of the implications, all of the other teachings and doctrines and truths and applications that flow out of the fact that Christ loved us and gave himself for our sins. That's the deposit. That phrase, the deposit entrusted to you, translates a single Greek word, paratheke. It was a legal term for property property. That would be entrusted to somebody else. So the owner still owns the property. They've just simply entrusted that property to somebody else, else for safe keeping. So a deposit. You take your money. It's still your money. You deposit it at the bank. It still belongs to you. You entrust it to the bank. That's the, the technical term. But Paul uses that term, this deposit entrusted. He uses it figuratively here and Twice in 2 Timothy, so we'll see that early on as we get into 2 Timothy chapter 1. In 2 Timothy one twelve, he writes, I am convinced that he, that is God, is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So Paul is aware that he has been entrusted with this deposit. A couple verses later, he says to Timothy, 2 Timothy one fourteen, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Almost Word for word, same command. He ends 1 Timothy, starts 2 Timothy with the same command, guard the deposit entrusted to you. And in the verses right before this, he leaves no doubt about what that deposit is. Listen to 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. That's the deposit, the testimony about our Lord, the witness, the proclamation, the truth about Jesus. He did things, he said things, and it's been recorded, written down, passed on by eyewitnesses. That's the deposit, the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, that is, don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel. That's the deposit. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And then he goes on to elaborate the gospel. He saved us and he called us to a holy calling. So it's a gospel of salvation. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. That's the gospel. You are not saved because of anything you have done to merit or earn this or deserve this from God. There's nothing about you that sets you apart as Worthy of this. He did it because of his grace and he is rich in grace. It pleased him to save you. That's the gospel. His own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death. How did he do that? By dying. And he brought life and immortality to light through The gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher. That last phrase, that's just another way of saying that testimony, that gospel, that message of salvation for the world, that was entrusted to me. That was the deposit given to me. I've been entrusted with safekeeping this testimony and telling the world about it, to preach it, to teach it, to get the word out. That is the deposit, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus accomplished everything necessary for the salvation of human sinners and for the redemption of the world that God made. And God doubly owns this world. He made it, so it's already his, and then he gave his son to shed his own blood to purchase it and redeem it back, so it's, it's doubly his. Jesus did all of that, but Paul and then Timothy They were entrusted with proclaiming and explaining and applying and teaching the meaning of Jesus' life and death and resurrection to the world. That's what we mean by doctrine. This is important. Doctrine is the explanation of the meaning of what Jesus did. Listen to J. Gresham Machen who said, Christ died, that's history, it's fact, it's true, it happened. Christ died for our sins, that's doctrine." That tells us what his death means, tells us what his death does, what it accomplishes. Christ died, that's history. Christ loved me and gave himself for me, that's doctrine. And so what Paul was entrusted with and what Timothy was entrusted with was telling the world, not just what Christ did, but what it means for the world. And it's good news for the world. It's good news for this world. And all of the tension and all of the chaos and all of the uncertainty that we see in the world today, what Jesus did in history 2,000 years ago is good news for this world today. That's the deposit entrusted. So in what sense does the gospel need to be guarded? Paul says, oh Timothy, guard the deposit. That word guard, like to to stand watch, like a sentry to protect something, First and foremost, what this calls for is faithfulness. The content of the gospel must be protected and preserved in all its purity. That meaning of what Jesus did, that has to be preserved from distortions, other interpretations, other explanations of what it means. This command that Paul gives at the very end sums up the entire letter. It's a summary command. Remember where we started out, Timothy's task in chapter 1, verse 3, Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations, rather than, this is my interpretation, the economy of God that's by faith. Stay there because there are people in Ephesus in the church in Ephesus who are teaching different doctrine, giving different explanations of who Jesus is and what he did and what it means and how you can be right with God. They're getting into all these genealogies and all these myths and all of these untrue things and it is causing chaos inside of the church. Different doctrine, heterodoxy rather than orthodoxy. Orthodoxy just means straight, right? Doctrine, right? Teaching. And that doctrine matters because it's the gospel that establishes the economy of God, God's way of ordering all of reality, beginning in His own household, the church. Anything other than this orthodoxy that Paul's laying out in this letter, anything else promotes chaos, it breeds envy and suspicion, it leads to disorder. So that's where it started. This is a summary. Guard the gospel. In the middle, we have this purpose statement from Paul, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. I'm writing these things so that if I delay and I don't come to you in person, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So he's explaining how to behave in God's household. And we have landed back here again and again. The church is the household of God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The the church is holding out that truth to the world. And finally, we come to this conclusion, guard the gospel, avoid false teaching. That's just another way of saying what he has said a few other times, wage the good warfare. Fight the good fight. So guarding the gospel requires faithfully preserving this truth that's handed down. Faithful alignment to the explanation given through the Spirit of God, through the apostles that Jesus commissioned. But there's a little bit more to this idea of guarding the gospel. The idea of a deposit, it could conjure up in your mind like a safety deposit box where you tuck something away, lock it up, hide it so nobody knows where it is, keep it safe there. Uh, Apparently back in 2011, Coca-Cola, they had this big announcement. They were moving their 125-year-old secret recipe, secret formula, to a public exhibit. But don't get too excited. The formula was not going to be public. The vault where the formula was kept was going to be public. So you could see the vault that contained the formula. That was going to be public. That idea of guarding Coca-Cola's formula, they guard that. They don't want anybody else to see it. They don't want anybody else to copy it. That's not the kind of guarding of the gospel that Paul's talking about the gospel if it was that'd be easy somebody write it down and then hide it lose it somewhere forget about it now it's guarded the challenge with guarding the gospel is that the mission is to make it known to the world and as soon as you start getting it out there all of these distortions and misunderstandings and misinterpretations and misapplications start to spread so it's a little bit of a challenge publicize it, and preserve its purity. That's what it means to guard the gospel. It's much more like the task of a lighthouse keeper. I think it's difficult for us to appreciate the kind of work a lighthouse keeper did because we have modern technology, electricity, LED lights, all of that. It's pretty easy. Just put it on a timer, right? Lights come on when you program them to. But imagine in the day when you couldn't just program it. You actually had to light kerosene lamps, And people's lives were at stake. And along the coast, treacherous cliffs and rocks, the most dangerous times for those ships along the coast was actually in the times when it would be most difficult for the lighthouse keeper to do their task, like in the middle of a blizzard or in the middle of a hurricane. And in the midst of that, when all the forces of nature make it especially perilous for people at sea and the forces of nature work to put out the light, the lighthouse keeper has to guard that light so that at all costs it stays on. I mean, people's lives are at stake. That's the picture I have in my mind when I think about this called guard the gospel. Keep the light on and don't let it go out because souls are at stake. And it's not going to be easy and it may come at the cost of lives, But keep the gospel out there. That truth, pure, undiluted, undistorted for the sake of the world. That's what it means to guard the gospel. So, what can we learn from this text about how to guard the gospel? I want to share with you four things I see here. First, guard the gospel by growing in the gospel. This command contained here in this letter is obviously addressed to Timothy. We see that personal, passionate, affectionate plea, Oh, Timothy, guard the gospel. But every member of the household of God in every generation plays a role in guarding the gospel by holding firmly to the gospel. No one person alone is the household of God. We are the household of God corporately, collectively, and so there's this sense in which together all disciples, all the members of the household of God share this responsibility of holding out the truth to the world, guarding the gospel. In 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul writes to Timothy, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust, there's a verb form of that word, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You, you see right there, you've got these four generations, Paul passes it on to Timothy who passes it on to faithful men who will teach others also, so it's assumed This deposit was not just for Paul, not just for Timothy. It's going to go on generation after generation after generation. Guard the gospel. Keep it. Pass it on faithfully. Think about the church as a body. That's a common metaphor throughout Scripture. The the immune system in the body is healthy and functioning when church members, all the members of the church, are vigilant to guard the gospel. And Paul's dealing with problems in the church in Ephesus because members in the church were getting into aberrant theologies and ideas and speculations. That causes all kinds of extra work for those elders in the church that deviates from the mission of discipling the nations. So, the, to the extent that the members of a church are grounded and rooted in the doctrine, the truth of the gospel, that body will be healthy and effective in mission, teaching the world, holding out the truth of the gospel to the world. So Paul has said to Timothy throughout this letter things like command and teach these things, teach and urge these things. The flip side of that is the assumption that everybody in the church is learning these things, loving these things, immersing themselves in these things. And that's our prayer, that we would be a church immersed in scripture, that we would be people of the word, people where you, you poke us and we're just going to bleed scripture. You bump us, God's word comes out. That's what we long for. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, all scriptures breathed out by God and it's profitable. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work Immerse yourself in the word of God and the gospel that you would know it well. As you know it and hold fast to it, you are playing an incredibly vital role in guarding the gospel. Does that make sense? Just by loving the gospel, just by treasuring the gospel in your own heart. We saw how that command toward the end, fight the fight of faith, is more of the personal side of just holding fast to the gospel yourself. As your mind wanders into other things, that's how the gospel gets twisted. So just holding fast to it yourself. Guard the gospel by holding fast to the gospel and growing in it. Second, guard the gospel by knowing, discerning when to steer clear. Verse 20, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. What's interesting here is that the word avoid is a word Paul has used already twice in this letter, but he's used it in a totally different sense. He used it back in chapter 1, verse 6. Certain persons have wandered. That's the same Greek word. Certain persons have wandered into vain discussions. And then in chapter 5, 15, for some have already strayed after Satan. So there it's translated wandered and strayed. And here he says to Timothy in a positive sense, wander, steer clear, Stray, avoid these irreverent, this irreverent babble, these ideas that are falsely called knowledge. So so there it has this negative idea of getting lost, and here Paul's telling Timothy, get lost. When, when you see these things, steer clear of it. Part of guarding the gospel is knowing what to avoid and when to avoid. Knowing what to avoid requires discernment to recognize ideas that contradict the gospel and this can be challenging because as Paul laid out back in chapter one the false teachers were inside the church and they were quoting scripture that's the nature of false teaching people use the bible to advance these ideas so it requires discernment you actually have to be alert you have to be on guard you have to be watching for subtle distortions of the gospel, things that undermine, un- undermine the teaching, the proclamation. Christ Jesus, by his grace, by his death alone, reconciles us to God. So don't be impressed or swayed by lofty-sounding ideas or lots of letters behind somebody's name or all of the nuanced ways that theories can be put out there. Paul says "The world, pe- people are going to call this knowledge falsely so it's going to sound really intelligent, really pervasive to a lot of, uh, persuasive to a lot of people, but don't be swayed by it. So I think that requires learning how to think implicationally, learning how to trace the trajectory of ideas. Do you, do you think that way? Like when you hear things, do you start to ask yourself, where does this go? It might sound good now. This has been a huge help to me in learning how to discern in the moment because I, I find it can sound like we're saying the same thing at the moment, but as you trace out the trajectory of an idea, you realize, wait a minute, that person's starting from a similar starting point, but they're going this way, and, and the teaching of Scripture is going that way. So the verse they're starting from, yes, amen, I'm with you. Why are you going that way? That conclusion you're coming to is a conclusion Scripture doesn't go to. Scripture comes to this conclusion. We have to think about the trajectory of ideas. That's what Paul has done throughout this letter. Back in chapter, uh, verses 4 and 5 of chapter 6, he, he says that these people in the church, what, what is the result, what's the trajectory of their ideas? Their ideas produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Watch the trajectory. He said in chapter 1 verse 4 that these myths Produce speculation instead of the economy of God. The gospel promotes the economy of God. God's way of ordering things. That's the trajectory of the gospel. So we have to learn how to discern what ideas to avoid, even though they might be subtle. But we also have to learn how to, we also have to discern when to avoid certain things. I think part of this command to Timothy just means just some things just don't even engage. Just avoid it, keep your eye on the ball, stay focused. When do you avoid things? Paul, throughout this letter, uses a wide range of vocabulary to talk about these ideas. Here, he refers to irreverent babble. The word translated babble literally means empty sounds, empty noise. Like sounds are coming out of people's mouths and it just means nothing. Nothing. He intentionally uses phrases like that to diminish the significance of these things that sound so intelligent to so many people. Irreverent babble, he calls them myths, endless genealogies, speculations, vain discussion, silly myths, old wives' tales in chapter four, quarrels about words in chapter six. Paul clearly has no time, no respect for these ideas. He's emphasizing they're false ideas, they're dangerous, they're worthless, they're fruitless, they're pointless. Just avoid these things, Timothy. And many times avoiding is, is the best response. Proverbs 29.9 says, If a wise man has an argument with a fool, the fool only rages and laughs, and there's no quiet. Or Jesus himself said in Matthew 7.6, Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. That takes some discernment. We want the gospel to go out to everyone. How do we discern when it's best to just move on. Here's a question I I ask myself. Is this other person just looking to quarrel about words, or are they actually open to hearing the truth? And a question I use in a conversation with somebody is just to ask, hey, before I answer that question, can I just ask you what difference would it make? Like if I gave you a satisfying answer, would you bend your knee and worship Jesus right now? And there are people who will be honest and say, no, I wouldn't. Okay, well then I don't know if it's worth my time to answer that question since it sounds like you're just trying to pick a fight, put up a smoke screen. If I give an answer to that, you'll just move on to the next objection. So just starting with a question like, what, what difference would it make to you if I gave a satisfying answer to that question? That, that can be helpful. Here, here's the other question I ask, and I think about this especially knowing in a role that I have as a pastor trying to lead and feed and protect and shepherd a, a flock Would others be helped to overhear me give an answer? Even if this person isn't sincere in wanting to know the answer, is anybody else listening who might benefit? That's how debates work. If you have a Christian and an atheist debating, the Christian debater on stage doesn't really expect to change the atheist mind mid-debate. I mean, that would be awesome by God's grace, right? But it's kind of the job of the atheist to not change their position in the debate. That's what the whole debate is. Don't change your position, make your case. But it's worth it for the Christian to debate with somebody who's not open to changing their mind because there's a whole audience of people who want to hear what's a good response from a Christian to that. And so then it is fruitful. That's one way I I think uh, when it comes to engaging with people, for example, on social media. This person I'm talking with may not be open to hearing. But I know that there are others who benefit from hearing a response to that. And so that can be helpful. So it takes discernment to know which ideas need to be avoided. When is it best to just move on and not engage with people? But that's a strategy Paul gives Timothy in guarding the gospel. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Third, guard the gospel with humility and gentleness. With humility and gentleness. Think about this. Timothy was called to guard a deposit. That alone produces humility. It means that the gospel did not come from Timothy. It didn't originate with him. It doesn't belong to him. It was entrusted to him. So the entire disposition is one of humble, humbly receiving something It's not yours. It elevates the, the importance, the significance, how, what a sober task it is. And it causes humility. The message we receive gives us no grounds for boasting at all. I mean, the, the, the message we're guarding, chapter 1, verse 15, is that Christ Jesus, came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. If, if you just start there, what, what is the message I'm guarding that I'm the foremost sinner and Christ came to save me? That just cuts. Under all of our pride, all of our arrogance, all of our frustration and anger with people who are wrong, the message itself creates humility in us. And it's not our message. And so when it looks to people like we hold fast to it with dogmatic certainty, which is going to be perceived, this is, the world is going to perceive you as arrogant if you think that's true. I mean, you'll, the world will say to you, you really think you're right. And you say, yes I do. I think Jesus is the only way. And somebody will say to you, that's incredibly arrogant for you to think that you're right and other people are wrong. My response is, it's not arrogant, it's humble for me to receive a word that came from God. It would be arrogant for me to reject a word that comes from God. Who am I to reject His gospel? It's actually a matter of humility for me to receive that gospel and say, I'm sorry, I can't change it. It's not mine. It's not up to me. And so, As Christians who believe that gospel, we must not be contentious or quarrelsome. Titus 3.2, Christians are to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. That doesn't mean other people aren't going to disagree with you. But as you engage with people, you can do that in a gentle way, showing perfect courtesy to everyone. 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Get this, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. That's the hope. Guarding the gospel is never merely about being right and winning arguments, ever, ever. It's always to be done with compassionate hope that God would grant repentance and bring people into freedom of life and light and truth in Jesus. Listen to what D.A. Carson writes about the example set by Francis Schaeffer, well-known Christian apologist, thinker, philosopher. D.A. Carson describes Francis Schaeffer this way. One of the reasons for Francis Schaeffer's influence was his ability to present his analysis of the culture With a tear in his eye. With a tear in his eye. Whether or not one agrees at every point with his analysis, and regardless of how severe his judgments were, I mean, he didn't hold back, speaking the truth. One could not responsibly doubt his compassion, his genuine love for men and women. Too many of his would-be successors simply sound like angry people. Dear Christian, if you believe that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom you and I are the foremost, we must not sound like angry people. That's good news for the world. Our times call for Christian leaders who will articulate the truth boldly, courageously, humbly, knowledgeably in a contemporary fashion, and with profound compassion. One cannot imagine how the kind of gospel set forth in the Bible could be effectively communicated in any other way. That's what we've called humble orthodoxy. The problem is that a lot of people within evangelical church think that humility means compromising when it comes to the truth. That if you stand for the truth, that itself is arrogant and wrong. It's not. You, you can have both. You can have faithful adherence to the truth of the gospel with a heart that's humble. And you do that by holding on to the message of the gospel. And here's, that brings us to our, our last way of guarding the gospel, which is more um, of the why. And it's another motive that produces that, that how. Guard the gospel for the sake of the world. There are all kinds of reasons I can think of that Paul could have attached here as the reason for Timothy, motivation for Timothy. Side note, as you read Scripture, just always be looking not just for the command, but what's the reason given with it? God fills his word with reasons to motivate, to convince, to encourage us. What's the reason Paul gives Timothy for guarding the gospel and avoiding false teaching? Verse 21, for by professing it, Some have swerved from the faith. How did they veer from the faith? By professing doctrines that distorted the gospel. People swerved from the faith. Listen, throughout this letter, Paul talks this way. Certain persons, by swerving from these, this is chapter 1, verse 6, have wandered into vain discussion. Chapter 4, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. How? How? By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, it's by getting into aberrant ideas that people depart from the faith. Second Timothy continues the same theme for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves, teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Second Timothy 216: avoid. Irreverent babble, it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Same term as the end of 1 Timothy. How do people swerve from the faith? By getting into subtle distortions of the gospel. But why does Paul care? What's the concern? The concern is the people who have swerved from the faith. I mean, get this, To Paul and Timothy, some people are not just nameless, faceless people. He has in mind Hymenaeus and Alexander, chapter 1, verse 20. People they shared life with, people they ate meals with, people they were in community with, those some people who swerved were people. And that's Paul's concern. Because the people who are still in the church, those are specific people, real people. And for the sake of souls, we must hold fast to the gospel. So it's, it's a false dichotomy to think that either you care about people or you care about doctrine. No, you, you care about doctrine because you care about people. You care about people by caring about doctrine. Hold those two things together. I'm not just trying to win arguments and put people down. We have no time for what's trendy in a lot of you know, politically conservative circles to just own the libs, people say. We're not just trying to own people or show people up. We care about people's souls. That's how Christians engage with the world. For the sake of people, we hold out the truth of the gospel. That God, in his mercy, may grant repentance, leading to knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape The snare that they're in, having been taken captive by the devil to do his will. Wow, what what depths, what riches, what wisdom, what knowledge of God in this glorious deposit that's been entrusted to you, to me, to us as a church family, and all the churches in this city preaching the gospel, and all the churches in this country still preaching the gospel, and all. The church is in this world, bought by the blood of Jesus, holding out that gospel, what a glorious deposit it is. And here's why you can walk out of this room this morning, no matter what's going on in the world, with total confidence that no matter how weak and overwhelmed you may feel, that gospel will not be lost. Paul ends the letter with these words, grace be with you. Grace be with you. We've said this before, grace is so much more than God cutting us some slack. He's not just saying to Timothy, God cut you some slack there, Timothy. No, he's saying, all of God's dynamic and active power be with you in this task of holding out this gospel for the sake of this world that God loves and gave his son to save. He says in 2 Timothy 2, 1, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strengthened by the grace." Grace is not just cutting you slack. Grace is empowering and strengthening you. It's God's power in you to give you all that you need. And so you can walk out of here with confidence because you guarding this deposit does not depend on you, but on God who entrusted it to you because it's his gospel anyway, which is why Paul can say in the next letter where we're going, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. He will. (laughs) So guard the deposit because he will. It's his gospel. It's his world. He did not send his son to condemn the world but to save it. And he will. Let's pray. Father, we love you. This is still my Father's world. And the light of your glory in the knowledge of Christ, in the gospel of Christ, is shining. Father, would you help us, with all humility, with all gentleness, with all patience, with long suffering and steadfastness, with courage and confidence, would you help us to be faithful in holding fast to that gospel personally and holding out that gospel to the world publicly? Would you help us so that like a lighthouse, that that light would keep shining and many more would be brought safely in God would you grant repentance that's what we're praying grant repentance God to our nation that that people would come to their senses that they'd come to the knowledge of the truth that they'd escape from that snare having been taken captive by the devil God would you grant the repentance that's needed would you open eyes we can't do that we just hold out this good news good news for the world Good news for the oppressed. Good news for those who suffer injustice. Good news for the proud and arrogant. Good news for racists. Good news for the greedy. Good news for racial reconciliation. Good news for this world. Christ Jesus in his body tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Christ Jesus reconciled us to you, Father. We love you because you first loved us. And we love this world because you love this world and gave your son to save it. So help us for your name's sake and for the sake of this world to be faithful. Amen.